What's up, Rocky Peak? How are we doing, 11 o'clock? Hey, it is good to be with you once again. If you are here for the very first time this morning, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak this morning. We're excited that you're here. We're excited that we get to learn and grow together. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to lead us in our time of teaching. And so as we like to highlight every week, you get ready for that. If you open up those programs you got on your way in, inside you're going to find a green and white message note sheet, which is both a good tool to follow along with this time of teaching, but also we like to provide some white blank space there for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit may be, may be putting on your heart to specifically remember or reflect on uh, later on after this message. I'm going to pray and we're going to dive right in. Jesus, I love something that Michael had just said, that you are bigger than our fears. I love that when we worship you, when we come to you in prayer, when we open up your word, whether it's individually or whether it's collectively that we do all those things, what we do is we are presented and we experience a Jesus that is bigger than we could possibly imagine. I love what that pastor said in the Mexico video, that while we may not have the same languages, we have the same spirit. Jesus, something I've prayed before that I want to pray again is that you are not simply king of Chatsworth, of California, of the United States, but you are king of all. And so today, as we continue to experience that, I pray that as the communicator that I would become less. As John the Baptist set a model for me, I pray that I would fall to the wayside. And Jesus, I pray that you as our king would become more, that our eyes, our hearts, our soul would be open to see a bigger view of who you are. And it is in your name, King Jesus, that we all say, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to go ahead and continue this series we've been in pretty much since the beginning of the new year called Serving Sacrificially, Discovering Your Purpose. And really what we've been doing is we've been taking a journey as a church as together we've been unpacking two key truths. The first is that God has an epic vision for each of our lives, a vision that we would experience healing, restoration, and forgiveness as we come under, as we place our lives under the leadership of King Jesus. And the second truth is that each and every one of us has been created since even before the beginning of time to play a significant role in carrying out God's epic vision for all of creation. And so over these last several weeks, if you've been with us, We've been looking at the fact that while we all have the same mission, we all have unique, unique callings and unique areas, different ways in which we carry that out. And so we've been unpacking the SHAPE acronym so that we could better understand how has God wired us because then that helps highlight what is it specifically that I'm supposed to do. And so whether it's these last couple weeks or from the beginning of the series, if you haven't been with us and would love to catch up, or if you just want a refresher, all of these messages are available on YouTube. Now, starting this morning, we are kicking off what I call the home stretch. We are in the last two weekends of this series, and we're going to close by once again focusing on the big picture truth that who we are is servants, that serving is not something we simply do, but now because of Jesus, being a servant is who we are. It is a core part of our identity, and that overflows and significantly impacts every 
area of our lives. And so today, we're going to be looking at how that impacts a significant area of all of our lives, an area in which we are all called to serve well, and that is in financial generosity. And so buckle in 11 o'clock because we are talking about money this morning. And I love how you can just feel the excitement leave the room and the nervous energy and the squirming begin. And it's true, isn't it? Regardless of what setting you're in, if somebody says, let's talk about finances, so many of us go, no. While there is a small group of you that would say, bring it on, Dre, bless you, you are a minority. The reality is many of us would probably relate with this attitude. You'd probably say, Dre, I would rather you call me out on my politics. I would rather you talk about sexuality and sexual identity. You know what? I would be even okay if you pointed a finger and called me out in front of everybody on one of my hidden sins. But please, don't talk about finances. Or specifically, don't talk about my finances. And again, the reason why this is uncomfortable is that it not only raises uncomfortable emotions, but those uncomfortable emotions shine a light that our finances oftentimes turn us into somewhat uncomfortable people. And to best illustrate this, this happens even when we're not dealing with our real finances, but pretend finances. Have you ever had the horrible experience of playing the board game Monopoly? Monopoly is pure evil. It is a sign that all is not right in the world. It is a great way to ruin all kinds of relationships. In my short, almost 38 years of life, I have played Monopoly exactly one time in my life. I played it when I was 17 years old, and afterwards, I swore it off for all time. One, because it takes 12 hours to play a game of Monopoly. But the main reason why I swore it off is I did not like how it made me feel and I did not like the person it turned me into. It's not real money, yet it's one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of my life. I don't want to lose this paper money. I like that it's got the little guy on it. But the other thing was it turned me into a horrible person. I became a backstabber. I became cool with bribery. I became a good fella out of a Scorsese movie as I'm playing this game. But the reason I use that as an illustration is that even pretend money makes us uncomfortable. The truth of the matter is when it comes to our actual real world finances, for many of us, that is a topic, that is an area in which what we feel more than anything else is fear, is terror, is anxiety, is worry. For many of us, we feel shame. We feel doubt. For many of us, we feel anger. We feel defeated. For many of us, we don't know what to think when it comes to it. For many of us, our finances brings uncomfortable emotions of selfishness, of stubbornness, of pride as it comes in. And when we feel that, then what happens is that overflows. And when it comes to our finances, when it comes to generosity, it turns us into that type of person. That as fearful as I am, 
I then become a scared person or an angry person or a selfish person. It changes the condition of my heart and that is exactly why we need to talk about this. That is exactly why we need to go to the Lord with this because understand this rocky peak, what it means to be financially generous has very little to do with the actual amounts, directions, places, or practices in which you give your finances to, but it has everything to do with the state of our hearts. To be a generous servant means that we are someone that is seeking the Lord's transformation in all areas, including our finances. And that's the heartbeat of this whole series, to serve well, to serve sacrificially in all areas. But for our purposes today, to be a servant that is financially generous, whatever that may look like in our specific lives, because that will look different person to person, but to be generous begins with transformation. It cannot happen without transformation. And so what we need is we need Jesus to come completely transform the way we see, the way we approach our finances, and to change our hearts and how we see generosity. And so as we jump in, Rocky Peak, together as family, let's take a spiritual deep breath. I'm here teaching this morning, but I'm also here learning alongside of you because I need this as much as anyone else. But one encouragement I want to give you is I have often found in my life, often the areas of the most uncomfortability Often my areas of my deepest fears or shames or negative emotions are the areas in which Jesus wants to enter into to lead me to the greatest joys and freedoms I've ever experienced. And so that's the foundation with which we go into this. And so there in your note sheet, you got a section titled Embracing Our Identity. And so again, we can't approach generosity without approaching transformation and how Jesus changes our identity from the inside out. And so what I mean by this, something we've said often throughout the series, is that we need to have a drastic paradigm shift in the way we see ourselves. To serve well means that we need to, we need to move from seeing ourselves as a person who occasionally serves. We need to move away from seeing ourselves as the person that, yeah, serving is an add-on. Serving is something that I do if the opportunity presents it or if I have the time or the resources. And what we need to embrace is that because of the work of Jesus in our lives, we are not people who occasionally serve, but we are now transformed servants. Serving is a core, irreplaceable part of our new identity because of the work of Jesus. Now, next week, as Michael closes out the series, he's going to unpack this further. But something he has said over the years that I always love is that serving is not the add-on to the car. Serving is the engine that makes the car go. And so our new identity, we are servants as a result of the power of Jesus in our lives. And the beauty in that is because we are now reflections of who Jesus is. Our king is a servant. Our king served us. Our king continues to serve us. And so transformation and identity is all about as Jesus is, so he transforms me to be. And so that's what it means to embrace this. There in your note sheet, I love from Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul is writing this letter 
to teach, to encourage Christ followers in and around the ancient city of Ephesus. And he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Would you underline that? So that you may know him better. Now, earlier in this chapter, Paul is celebrating the Christ followers in Ephesus. They weren't a perfect church, as none of our churches are perfect, but Paul is celebrating that he's been hearing that they've been growing in their faith, that they've been growing in their service, that they are listening and following to the leadership of Jesus in their lives. And what Paul models for us is that the most important thing that he could pray for them, the most important thing today that we could pray for ourselves or for others or have prayed over us is that regardless of where we are at, that we pray that our eyes would be open to see more clearly who Jesus really is because when we see clear who he is we then more clearly see who he is leading us to be through transformation and so that leads me to your first fill-in right there why this is so key is that our identity overflows into every area of our lives our identity overflows into every area of our lives. It's not who we say we are, but it's who, what we genuinely believe about our identity that will impact everything about us. What you believe to be true about your identity is going to impact your relationships. It's gonna impact your priorities. It's gonna impact the way you see and approach sexuality and sexual ethics. It's gonna impact your priorities. It's gonna impact what you live for. And as we were talking about this morning, that leads to the second fill-in, including our finances. What we truly believe about our identity is going to significantly impact not just how we see but how we act and how we approach towards our finances and this concept of generosity and I know for me Rocky Peak when I when I do some examination of my own heart and my own soul and many of you can probably relate to this what I find is often there is a separation between Jesus and my life that's following him and my finances and that can happen for various different reasons, but again, when I do the hard work of examining what I'm presented with is that often that's a separation that I have created. A friend of mine, Joel, over the years has often put it this way, that it's interesting that as Christ followers, we find it easier to trust Jesus with our eternal salvation than we do to trust him with our checkbook. And that's interesting, isn't it? But here's the truth we need to understand. Our finances, how we think, how we approach, how we view generosity, reveals what we honestly believe about identity. 
our finances reveals what we honestly believe about our identity, both what we really believe about who Jesus is. Is he big? Is he king? Does he have authority? And therefore, who we are as a result. When we have a big view of Jesus, we gain a big view of who he's creating us to be. When we have a small view of Jesus, we have a small view of who we've been called to be. And I like how Jesus puts it there in your note sheet in Luke chapter 16. He says that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so as we unpack the context of this a little bit, a master is any area in our lives that has not been brought under the leadership or authority of Jesus. Any area in our lives that has not been brought under the authority of Jesus becomes a false God. Because if it is not under Jesus' authority, often its voice is weighted as much, if not more, than Jesus in our lives. And for various reasons, this happens with money. When we look throughout scripture and what it teaches about finances and generosity, this is not a modern problem. Scripture addresses money often because this is a person problem. This is a person temptation. This is a person area of fear and doubt. And so again, this is why Jesus wants to reconcile this with me, with us. Because if Jesus does not transform this key area in our lives, not only will we be hampered in our ability to serve well, to serve sacrificially, but we will be hampered in our view of his identity, of our identity, and like Michael said earlier, we will then live our lives out of fear rather than joy. This will not change on my strength and abilities. This will not change in your strength and abilities. The beauty, Rocky Peak, is this will change because of the strength and power of King Jesus. And so, how does he transform this? Well, he begins by transforming our vision when it comes to financial generosity. And he does that in two key ways. And so there you know, you've got a section titled A Transformed Vision. Your first fill-in is this, that in a transformed vision, our finances are joyfully placed under Jesus' leadership. Our finances are joyfully placed under Jesus' leadership. And if we're going to have some real talk, I know that there's some of us out there that are looking at that statement going, that is a paradox. Never in my life would I ever use the words finances and joyfully together. Many of us would look at that and go, that is absolutely impossible. And you know what? You are right. In our own strength and abilities, it is absolutely impossible. But we serve under the authority of a king who does the impossible. And so again, as I've been listing out earlier, what does the power of Jesus do? Because that is how we experience transformation. 
Well, what the power of Jesus does is that it willingly enters into this area, which again, for many of us, is an area of fear, terror, worry, anger, defeat, shame, pride, selfishness. He willingly enters into that area, and through his power, he completely transforms it into an area of joy. And if you wonder, well, how do you know that's what Jesus does? Look at his cross. That is exactly what he did on the cross, was the cross was a place of death, was the cross was a place of brokenness, the cross was a place of sin and damnation and destruction, the cross was a place of defeat, and what did our king do? He willingly entered into that brokenness, into that fear, into that darkness, and he completely transforms it, so all these years later, we look at the cross and we see joy. Christ followers, it is that same power that transformed the cross from darkness to a place of joy that he brings into your life. It is that same power that he brings into your finances and generosity. And it is that same power that transforms us. So we're not a people that give out of obligation, that give out of fear, that give out of even tradition, but we are a people that give out of joy. Because as Jesus is, so he is transforming us to be. And that joy is an overflow of encountering Jesus regularly. That's how we experience his power in all areas of our life. That's how we experience this bigger vision for our finances and for every area. That's how we experience this joy despite what our circumstances are telling us by regularly encountering the king of all and that overflowing into our generosity because it is through this encounter with his power that we learn what it truly means to trust in who Jesus is. And when I say trust, I don't mean this apprehensive, nervous, man, I really hope you are who you say you are. But it is a trust, a confident trust in even though I don't know what's going on in my circumstances, even though I'm struggling, even though I do feel fear and anger or whatever it may be, I can trust Jesus that you are more. I can trust that you are with me. I can trust that you are king and I can trust that you give me joy. And as a perfect father, he provides us opportunities to go from lip service to developing this very real, tangible trust. See, as Christ followers, we would all probably agree and say that the most important thing we could be doing in our lives is learning how to trust Jesus. At Rocky Peak, we put that in the language that we want to become Christ followers who are learning to listen and follow the leadership of Jesus in every area of our lives. And that is a wonderful, beautiful sentiment, and that is really easy to say in these big picture hypotheticals. But it's not in the big picture where we learn how to grow and develop that. It is in the practical. It is in the real of our lives. Let me illustrate it this way. So my five-year-old daughter for Christmas, we got her her very first bicycle. And so she's got this decked out frozen themed bike. I don't understand it. It's got training wheels 
And much like my oldest, my son before her, she's getting comfortable with the bike right now and there's going to be a point in which we take off her training wheels and we're gonna teach her how to ride a two-wheeler by herself. And just again, like I did with my son before her, when we come to that point, I'm gonna envision her. Lucy, the most important thing you're gonna learn how to do is you're gonna learn how to balance on two wheels. You're gonna learn how to stay upright. Now, hypothetically, imagine is that as her father, when I'm teaching her, that's the only thing I say to her. Lucy, the most important thing you can learn how to do is learn how to balance and stay upright, and it is gonna be incredible when you do. You're gonna experience so much joy. And naturally, imagine if she goes, okay, Dad, how do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> the most important thing you can do is stay, is balance, is stay upright. Okay, Dad, how do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> the most important thing you can do. And so what's missing in that? Well, I'm giving her a great big picture vision, but I'm not giving her the opportunity to practically learn how to grow and develop this. And so as her teacher and as her father, what I'm going to do then is this is how this is lived out, is I'm going to give her opportunities to learn. And these opportunities at times are going to bring fear and worry in her. These opportunities at times are going to bring doubt or anger out of her as she's learning. There's going to be times in which she stumbles. There are going to be times even in which she falls and hurts herself and wants to quit. And what's my role as her father and teacher is to be alongside her each and every step of the way and to continue to remind her that even when she doesn't believe in herself, I do. And when she gets it, she will experience a deep joy. The most important thing we can do is learn how to listen and follow the leading of Jesus in our lives. And one of the key areas in which we grow and develop that is in learning what it means to be generous and serve through our finances. And that leads to your second felon is that financial generosity leads to freedom. Financial generosity leads to freedom. Because the truth is, so many of us are experiencing the opposite. That how we feel, how we act, how we view our finances and generosity leads to bondage. When I examine this in my own heart, not just in finances, but one of the weaknesses of my character is that I'm a fear guy. I'm the guy that should never be allowed on WebMD because I think through scenarios. It's natural for me to see what could go wrong. And from a strategy standpoint, that can be helpful at times, but my life was not meant to be lived out of the overflow of fear. And when it comes to generosity and finances, so many of us are living out of the overflow of fear or darkness or whatever that may be. And so what the Lord does is that he gives us a bigger vision that in serving as he did, it leads to freedom. And understand, this bigger vision is not specifically talking about freedom from our current circumstances. Rocky Peak, I'm not going to pretend 
that many of you here are not struggling financially. I'm not going to pretend that many of you here are not dealing with hurt and worry and anxiety and tears and pleading with the Lord, what is going to happen? And I want to remind you that you have not been forgotten. The Lord sees you and the Lord is with you. But remember, the Lord is always looking to do something bigger than we could possibly imagine. And so when I mention this freedom, I'm not specifically talking about a circumstantial external freedom. I'm talking about an internal freedom that is transforming our hearts, our minds, in our souls and this freedom comes from when we as Christ followers whatever our circumstance when we embrace who we really are when we embrace who Jesus is transforming us to be and through that embrace we learn to live our new identity out we experience a deep freedom and a new joy which then overflows into our external struggles hurts and circumstances. It is a freedom that says whatever generosity practically looks like for me and my family in this season, and again, it will look different, I have been set free by Jesus to serve well. I have been set free by Jesus to be a generous servant. You know, throughout this series, And later in our service time together, we've been singing this song that makes this wonderful declaration that Christ followers, our wealth is in the cross. Our wealth is not in what we have materially, but our wealth is in the cross of Jesus. And why? Because it is the cross of Jesus that reveals identity. It reveals that he is king and it reveals who he is transforming us to be. I love on your note sheet, in 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul writes this. Remember this, that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Again, don't be a curmudgeon about this. For God loves a cheerful giver. Would you underline that? Cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly. And again, we need to have a bigger picture for what the Bible means by blessings and what it means to be blessed is that often we relate that to the circumstantial or to our material possessions. And yes, there are times in which we receive financial blessings or material blessings, but the Bible uses this word more often to go much deeper, that what it means to be blessed is that you are someone who is wealthy because of Jesus, you are being transformed transformed to become a new person because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and he is giving you everything you need which is his power and his presence for every area of your life and so again and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times having all that you need which is Jesus you will abound in every good work. And something that is so extraordinary about this is I had you underlined the word cheerful. And I remember the first time I heard Michael talking about this verse was about 10, 12 years ago. And he highlighted that in the Greek, the original language that the New Testament was written in, 
the word that we've translated for cheerful is a word called ilaros, which if you were to see it written out, it actually might read more as hilaros, which is the actual root for the word hilarious. So let's put that word into what I had you underline. For God loves a hilarious giver. Is Paul talking about obligation? Is Paul talking about fear? Is Paul talking about tradition? No, he's talking about being generous for joy. And what continues to paint this beautiful picture is the context of what he's talking about. In both 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, he is talking about generosity to the church at Corinth. And he uses as an example the Christ followers, the churches in Macedonia, which is the northernmost part of Greece at the time. And these were churches that were struggling financially Financially. These were churches that were living in poverty. And at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul tells us that they heard, the Macedonian churches heard, that there was a significant financial crisis affecting the Christian church in Jerusalem. And so what did they do? They gave. They gave joyfully. They gave generously. And it may not have been large amounts of money, but they didn't give out of surplus. They gave out of their poverty. And Paul highlights them as the showing what joy does to their heart, that they don't have much. But the reason why they stepped up and gave was because this is who they now are. They're hilarious givers. We are being transformed into hilarious givers. And so as we move on, we needed to begin with this foundation, that this is the heart of generosity begins with transformation. What I want to do with the time we have left is I want to talk about what this can look like practically. And there are many, many different ways. This is not an exhaustive list. But there's three key ways of financial generosity we practically see lived out in scripture. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a little bit of time to unpack these and then to hope to spark a dialogue between you and the Lord of what that could specifically look like in your life. So there in your note sheet, you got a section titled Three Types of Generosity. And before we jump in again, I wanna highlight something that's been a heartbeat of our series is that we all have the same Jesus, we all have the same mission, which is to expand the kingdom. But again, we have a beautiful diversity in how we are specifically called to carry this out. This is going to look differently with all kinds of different people. And that is 100% true when it comes to financial generosity, even in these specific areas. And so again, the important thing is not the amounts, the practice, the who, the what you're giving to. The most important thing each of us can do as Christ followers is to be a people that are listening and following to the leadership of Jesus when it comes to generosity. And at times, that's going to change. There are some of us that are going to be surprised that the Lord is going to empower us to give more than we think, than more than we would have thought. There are some of us in which the Lord is going to joyfully empower us to give less. 
There are some that are going to be called to give to these needs or these organizations or these people or these churches. There are some that are going to be called to give to others. Whatever it may be, remember that there is a beautiful diversity in how this is carried out and we want to become a people that are both seeking his leadership and trusting that our brothers and sisters are doing the same. And so as we go into the first one, the first example, your first villain is this, percentage giving or what's called the tithe. And so the, to kind of give this a simple modern definition is that what it means to tithe is that it's a regular rhythm, and the caveat is that rhythm can look different between different people in different seasons, in which we give a percentage of our regular income to expand the kingdom, usually to a local church, a Rocky Peak, or a church that we call our home, or maybe sometimes to another organization. Now that word tithe is a very common word, whether we've been in and out of church, but what it means is it means it's derived from the Hebrew word ten. And the truth of the matter is, regardless of our religious backgrounds, this is probably the most well-known act of financially giving to the movement of Jesus, but it's also probably the most understood because for many of us, when it comes to this idea of tithing, it feels very legalistic. It feels very much like a scary, emotionless, law-driven thing. Many of us have experienced hurt in different religious backgrounds or experiences in which the tithe was weaponized and was used to gauge our maturity. If you are not diligently giving 10%, you are not a good enough Christian. You are not mature. And so what we need to do is we need to understand the heart behind the tithe. And when we unpack this, we see that there is a beautiful heart of worship. Now we have an essentials course titled Serving Sacrificially that digs much deeper into the tithe. I don't have the opportunity to do that this morning and so we're gonna do kind of a brief overview, but again, focusing on the heart. And so to understand the heart, we need to understand where the tithe came from. And so to do that, we not only need to go to the first half of our Bibles, the Old Testament, we actually need to go to the very beginning of our Bibles, the book of Genesis. The first time we ever see anybody offer to, offer to the Lord a tenth of what they have is in Genesis chapter 14, when we see Abram or Abraham. And there's a lot of context here, but after rescuing his family, after defeating enemy nations and enemy kings, he takes what they have received from those conquests, and in an act of worship, he gives a tenth of it to the Lord. And then if we go forward several chapters in Genesis chapter 28, his grandson Jacob has a powerful vision in a specific city. And it's so powerful that he renames the city Bethel or Bethel, which means a holy place because he says that the Lord is here. And then he commits, he prays the Lord and says, if you are with me in this journey, then anything I receive in this journey, I will give a tenth back to you. And so these aren't examples of necessarily regular tithing, but this is an example that sets the foundation for what's to come because what's the common thread between both these stories is that the tithe was an act of worship. And then we move forward a little bit to the nation of Israel out of the laws of Moses. And so again, briefly, as the nation of Israel is coming out of captivity, they are establishing a new nation. 
but they are establishing a nation in which there is no separation between the holy and the regular, that in all areas, in all things, they can all point back to God and every aspect of their lives can be used as an act of worship. And so when it comes to their income, so to speak, there in your note sheet, you look at this example in Leviticus 27, a tithe of everything from the land whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord, to Yahweh. Whoever would redeem any of, any of their tithes must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. And so what do we see from this example was that tithing was a regular act of worship. But not only that, it was a tangible reminder that we can worship through every area and specifically for them that we can worship through our generosity. Now practically their tithe went to support the spiritual life of their nation. It went to support the priests and the Levites. But there were also times in which the Lord called them to use their tithe to love people through it. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we see that every third year, their tithe was directed to go to those in their nation that were suffering and disenfranchised. Specifically, it lists out widows, it lists out orphans, and it lists out non-Jewish foreigners, refugees, who had come to take, re take, uh, take residence with them. And so again, as an act of worship, what do we see their generosity do? Well, to use the language of Jesus from the New Testament, it loves God and it loves people. And in any form and in any way, when we are loving God and we are loving people, we are worshiping. But again, like I've highlighted, what matters isn't necessarily the amount, it's the heart behind the giving. And as we jump a little bit ahead to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is issuing a strong rebuke to these religious leaders, these hypocrites, and he brings up the issue of tithing. And in his rebuke, the issue is not that they're not tithing. In fact, they are regularly tithing and boasting about it, but in essence, as I paraphrase, he's saying, you tithe regularly, but you have an awful heart. And so what good is your tithe if the heart behind it is not, is not good? In other words, remember the hilarious giver thing? Jesus is boldly saying, if you're not going to be a hilarious giver, we don't need the money. Now a question comes up. Because the tithe flows out of the Old Testament. Specifically, it flows out of the nation of Israel. And even though it was an opportunity to worship, for them to build the habit, it was a mandatory act in the nation of Israel. A question gets raised that as Christ followers today in 2020, does this still apply? Is this still mandatory? Is the 10% thing something we should still be using? And to be honest, there is some disagreement in the Christian theological world on this. There are wonderful Christ followers who which we will share heaven with on multiple sides of these issues. And so it's a very good question to raise. And so how do I approach this? How do we as a church approach and again, we go back to the heart. As we look at the life of Jesus, as we look at the beginning of the church, as we look at the example that we now follow, you know, 
This act of tithing is no longer a mandate. This act of tithing is not mandatory for us as believers, but what we see through the example of the New Testament, it continues to be not only a core way in which all of us can partner with the movement of Jesus, but it becomes a key way in which we can develop worship in every area of our lives. I heard it put this way once, and I thought it was really powerful that when we look back at the nation of Israel and we look at our lives today as we live in the aftermath of Jesus in which they did not, have we today received more or less from Jesus than what they had received then? See, the beauty in the Old Testament, something we often say, is that the entire Bible is one whole story that continues to progress. Much of what we see in the Old Testament is an introduction, the beginning of things that we will now take and experience more of. And I remember the question was once posed, if tithing is an act of worship, why would we today, who have received more, want to try to find a way to worship less? And it goes back to that verse from Ephesians chapter 1 that the prayer is that we would see more of who Jesus is. And so my answer to that question is, again, it's not mandatory, but I am, free for, I am freed by Jesus so that I can not only participate in this act of worship, but I can even exceed what I saw before it. I like there in your note sheet, the way Tim Keller puts it, did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us or did he give it all? Which, by the way, is a great line that I'm going to steal for Good Friday probably. <laughs> Tithing is a minimum standard for believers. We certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. And again, why would we want to try to find an opportunity to worship less when we have received so much more. And so with that, what I wanna do is I wanna give you a reflection question, and this isn't in your note sheet. Feel free to go ahead and jot this down. But the heart is that you would begin a conversation and a dialogue with Jesus about how to lead you in this. And so I wanna give you a question to start this off, and that question simply is this. Jesus, how are you leading me regarding tithing? Jesus, how are you leading me in regards to tithing? Because again, that's the most important thing. And there's some of you that maybe the Lord just wants to encourage you. Hey, you have continued this act. Keep doing it. For someone of us, maybe the Lord wants to lead us to a specific amount. For some of us, maybe to lead us to this 10%. For some of us, beautifully, joyfully, maybe the Lord wants to empower us to exceed the 10% and give more. For some of us, beautifully and joyfully, maybe the Lord wants to lead us to give less than the 10%. And he will lead us to give one or two, whatever it may be. We just want to open ourselves to listening and following to his leadership. But another important thing about going before the Lord and asking this question is that there are many of us here that before the Lord wants to lead us to a specific amount, he first wants to give you a peace in how you view tithing. That some of you are hurt from it. 
And the Lord wants to heal and restore that. Some of you feel uncomfortable because you have the desire to give, but you may not have the means. Or maybe you're in a complicated family situation in which you are the only believer, whether in your marriage or whether in your family, and that's a hard place to compromise. And for some of you, maybe by going before the Lord, he wants to give you peace that I see your heart, I see your desire, I know that right now is not the time for you, and it is okay. But whatever it is, it begins by going before him and asking, how do you want to lead in this area? So that was the first example. The second example is the poor and those in need. A second example of generosity is by giving to the poor or by giving to those in need. And this is key to the big picture we've been talking about throughout this whole series, that when it comes to serving, when it comes to worshiping through generosity, this is our opportunity. We are being called to be active participants in meeting this need. But again, the way this will look, the timing this will look, the frequency, the amounts, the people, this is gonna look radically different, not just amongst different people, but at different times and at different seasons in our lives. When it comes to helping the poor and the need, there are many different ways in which this is carried out. There are what I call meeting in the moment needs, which is the needs you didn't know about until you encountered someone, whether a family member or a friend, or if you go to life group and hear that someone in your life group is having a financial hardship, or again, something along those lines, whether you step out of an establishment and see someone holding a sign and struggling, those are examples of taking care of people in the moment. Then there are taking care of those in needs by supporting organizations or supporting causes that are helping people along do this. This would be by supporting an organization regular like the Children's Hunger Fund, who is a wonderful organization that focuses a lot on what's called food packs in which they feed the hungry in our local communities. This would be supporting someone like Hope of the Valley Rescue Mission or like what you see in your program, in the back of your programs, World Vision, which are trying to love and support the homeless communities in our season, in our cities. This would be supporting a sponsored child, whether in our local communities or whether globally. Again, the point is this is going to look different. And regardless of how different it may look or what our timetables in the big picture truth is this is our opportunity to worship and so again I want to lead you back to that reflection question to going before the Lord and saying Jesus how are you leading me in regard to those that are in need and for some of us the Lord may begin to stir or put a passion in our heart for a specific person or a specific people group, or a specific organization, or a specific need. For some of us, what the Lord may want to do is begin by transforming our vision, by maybe showing us that we are active participants in this, or by maybe through humility healing some hurt or judgment or anger we feel towards certain groups that are in need, because maybe we blame and say, this is your fault why you're in need. You did this. Again, for some of us, Maybe the Lord wants us to ask that question so he can give us a peace 
There can sometimes be a temptation to go, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing it all, I need to do more or else I'm gonna fall out of favor with the Lord. And again, the Lord does not desire for you to be a tortured spirit. And by opening this dialogue, much like we talked about with tithing, for some of us, the Lord simply wants to give you peace that you're okay and that he sees your desire in your heart. That's the second example. The third example, the final one, is projects. Oh, I'm pretty sure I just broke my microphone. So I'm just going to hold it up here while I continue to teach. This is going to be fun for the video. So what I mean by projects is these are opportunities to expand the kingdom through what I call finite or limited time giving. Now, sometimes they're long-term projects, but I would define these as having a, 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 a specific beginning and an end. And so one example of projects that we see uh, throughout the Bible in the Old Testament is the temple, a place to be able to go and worship God. And so there in your note sheet, you have an example of this in Exodus 36. And it says that they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought and carry out the work, to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all of the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing ore because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. This is a great example of hilarious givers. They gave so much that Moses had to be like, we're good, stop. And so there are a lot of different examples. Again, there's examples of a place or a thing. Several years ago, we did a project like that to remodel this, the worship center. And the reason we did it is we couldn't fit all the people the Lord was coming in our old worship center. And so we engage in a, uh, we engage in a process going, some people are walking, it's all good. There we go. Another example, I know, right? Woo, you broke your mic. Another example of a project that I think is really powerful is the organization ZOE. Are many of you familiar with ZOE International and ZOE United States? They are an organization that we've often partnered with here at Rocky Peak. Pastor Dave Cox is leading that organization right now. And ZOE exists through the love of Jesus to rescue children from sex trafficking. And ZOE has done wonderful international work, but they are in the middle of a project in which they are building a facility in the Los Angeles area to be a home for these children that they rescue, to not only have a safe place to be, to experience love and rehabilitation and teaching and to be taught and shown that they have immense value and worth in Jesus. And so that's another example of a place or a project. But another example of these projects we see in scriptures are hardships, are sufferings, are tragedies. And again, this could be individual for people. This could be collective. We talked about the churches of Macedonia supporting the Jerusalem church. We, throughout the years, do examples of this at Rocky Peak. We call them our initiatives for the poor or our generosity initiatives, where we support the Himalayan joy home. 
where we support Pastor Peter in Uganda. And around the holidays, we raised money to build a sports field for their facilities, where we do the Give Water campaign, in which we raise money to be able to dig water wells for communities that don't have it. A couple of months ago, we did a coat drive because someone from Rocky Peak brought that to us, and we were able to help in a short-term project. And so again, regardless of what it may be, the same reflection question applies is for us as Christ followers to go before the Lord and say, Jesus, how are you leading me in regard to projects? And the Lord may put a passion, a call in your heart. Or again, the Lord may begin to give you a peace. And he may say, I know you want to do everything, but you can't, and that's okay. Or the Lord may say, I don't have a project for you yet, but I want to open your eyes and your sensitivity because it's coming. And once it, does, do, once it does, you're going to know immediately, this is something I'm supposed to get involved with. And so regardless of what it may be, again, it's going to look different. Even these three are going to look very different amongst us, even in your own life in different seasons. But ultimately, as we wrap things up, I just want to ask you one last question. Are you seeking his leadership? And I want to invite the band to come on out as we get ready. But again, that's the heart of what it means to be a generous servant. That it's not the amount, it's not the frequency, it's not the direction, but it is a heart that is regularly submitting to Jesus and asking joyfully, how do you want to lead in the area of financial generosity? And it is when we begin to do it that we grow in this trust, in this confidence, and in a joy over who he is and who he is transforming us to be. Amen? As we go into this time, and appropriately for our topic, as we receive our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we're going to sing that song I quoted a little bit earlier in which we get to declare, Jesus, our wealth is in the cross. And again, I'm not, the Lord sees your struggle and your pains. The Lord does not minimize it, but know that because of the death and resurrection, you have much. Your soul has much. Your heart has much. And so let us be a people that declare this with joy, that regardless of, quote, the output, regardless of what it is we have or don't have, we have the opportunity to worship through generosity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are king of all areas, and we thank you that we can worship our king in all areas, that we can worship you through times of plenty and times of joy, that we can even worship you through times of struggle, through times of trial and hurt. And so I pray when it comes to this topic of generosity, we praise you because you enter into this to transform it so that it becomes a place of joy. And so as we declare this truth that our wealth is in the cross, Jesus, I pray that we learn truly what that means and that that would open our eyes to have a bigger view of who you are and who your power is transforming us to be. And it is in your name we all said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak.